Hi, it's Mike. Been a little bit of a rough week for us here at the Soccer Capital Podcast. Uh, the show you're maybe about to listen to was recorded on Sunday, December 4th. We're about a week late due to some technical difficulties and minor health problems. Uh, so we thought before we put this out, and we will put it out since we recorded it, uh, we'd bring you up to date with some things. And first of all is something uh, uh, very distressing to all of us here, and especially to me. It was the passing of famed soccer journalist Grant Wall, formerly of Sports Illustrated, also doing his own uh, subscription-based thing on Substack right now and the Planet Football podcast. He passed away on Friday while he was in Qatar covering the match between Argentina and the Netherlands. It's a very sad day. Uh, there was a lot of outpouring on Twitter, social media, everywhere from all facets of the soccer world. He had earlier in the tournament been uh, fated as one of the few journalists that had covered eight consecutive World Cups. And uh, he apparently, at first word, apparently had a cardiac arrest while covering the match. Uh, they did perform CPR there in the press box. He was Ubered to the hospital where he passed away. He slightly younger than me. It's something I think about, as can happen to anyone our age at any time, no matter what shape you're in, and they get born out a lot. But uh, the outpouring of well wishes, the stories of how gracious he was to young journalists all over the world, basically, uh, were many. They were numerous. They were profound. And it brings to mind the same sort of thing that we heard just a little over two years ago when in October of 2020, uh, podcaster Daryl Grove, who started the Total Soccer Show, had passed away from colon cancer. Uh, lost two of the leading lights that led me on the journey of being a soccer fan and into doing podcasting. So it's a very sad day um, for me. And it's going to be sad for a while, but it's up to us to carry on. And uh, last thing I have to say is something that was shared by his co-host, uh, Chris Whittingham, on what is apparently the last episode of the Fo uh, Planet Football podcast, where he said as he signed off, he shared, he was kind. That's just what he did. That's just who he was. We're going to miss you, Grant Wall. And before we get into the regular podcast that we did, we thought we'd bring you up to speed with a couple of things that uh, went on, especially at the World Cup. We have our final four. Uh, one Cinderella story, it's Morocco, who got past Portugal in what is possibly Cristiano Ronaldo's final match at the World Cup. They move on to the semifinals. They will take on France, the defending champions, who were pretty much probably outplayed by England, but Harry Kane made a penalty. Harry Kane missed a penalty. Uh, they got a header from Olivier Giroud, put France ahead late 2-1. England threatened, couldn't equalize. And uh, so France and Morocco, fascinating uh, little backstory for that historically, and also going to be a fascinating game on the pitch. Morocco, by the way, has not lost since June 1st. And that was a friendly match against the U.S. that the U.S. beat them 3-0. They haven't lost since. In the other semifinals, we do have Argentina, who held back a spirited late comeback from the Netherlands, won in penalty kicks in a ferocious day of uh, World Cup action, and they will take on Croatia, who withstood an early barrage and one of the most beautiful goals you'll ever see, finished by a wonderful Neymar finish. Uh, they came back, uh, they tied it up uh, with a great fight back as the Croatian team that was in the finals four years ago. And then their uh, goalkeeper, Dominic Likovic, uh, was fantastic in the penalties. Uh, Neymar was held back for the fifth one. Brazil never got there. They move on 
So that brings you up to speed what happened in the World Cup. Not a lot coming out for City News. Uh, this one-week-old episode will take care of uh, this week's episode for us. We'll be back next week, uh, barring any trouble, uh, to record a new podcast for you. And uh, hopefully see you all at the uh, St. Luligan's Holiday Party at Schlafly Tap Room upstairs on Saturday the 17th. And now for our regular show. Welcome, welcome, lovely listeners, to another episode of the Soccer Capital Podcast. And I'm your host, Mike Turner, and joining me in our studios in deep southern Illinois is a man who believes that nude podcasting is the way to go. It's producer Mason. Getting chilly yet, Mason? So, so I was, uh, I was doing producer stuff. And uh, the D slipped by me there for a second. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All I got to say is, uh, just let the freak flag fly, man. And uh, here, wrap yourself in this blanket, okay? I. And also joining us, probably thankfully from a remote location, from his studio cave somewhere in the wilds of West St. Louis County. This sucks, dude. <laughs> Are we not doing phrasing anymore? <laughs> it's a man who wishes England's second all-time leading goal scorer, Harry Kane, played for his team. It's Sean Campbell. How are you doing today, Sean? Oh, I'm doing just dandy now that Harry Kane actually has a goal to his name in this World Cup. That's, at least I still have a team to root for. It's my backup, but Harry Kane, he's one of our own. And you'll still have Harry Kane on Tottenham, at least until the summer. And uh, also joining us uh, is a man who just doesn't think that Killian Mbappé is all that. It's Chris Zimmerman. How are you doing this week, Chris? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. You know, Killian Mbappé is, let me just open up this tab on my computer. You know, he's only 23. I'm 25. So I think that's all you need to know that I'm better than Killian Mbappé. And there you go. We have By definitive two empirical proof. <laughs> Doing ageism live on the podcast. <laughs> Math always gives you the truth, doesn't it? That's like, uh, just give. We're here. Just give me something, man. All right, he's so good. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but we're here not to talk about Killian and Pape. No, we're got to talk a little St. Louis City SC. We don't have much, but we got something. One thing to look forward to while the World Cup's going on is you don't expect to hear much news coming out of any there, anywhere about the club. But uh, the next big thing that awaits us is the MLS Super Draft will come on December 21st. Merry Christmas, everyone. Maybe we'll be able to find one or two gems within the, uh, the offerings during the Super Draft. And uh, we're also awaiting the uh, 2023 MLS schedule and confirmation that City will be in the Western Conference because uh, uh, we really want that rivalry with uh, Sporting KC now that they're trying to co-opt Sporting Capital, the U.S., away from St. Louis. And this aggression will not stand, ladies and gentlemen. So, all right. I think that us being in the Western Conference is more or less officially confirmed but it's a really weird source so if you go to mlsstore.com which is a bit like citing wikipedia but it is an official mls site we are listed as being on the western conference in there so like there hasn't been as far as i can tell an official announcement but on the mls store we're listed in the western conference so i think it's official but i don't know it's been leaked by webmasters of all people, <laughs> yeah, basically. But, you know, everybody expected it. Nashville seemed to be a temporary shift to the West. That was almost actually stated in some ways. It just seems natural. Everybody's, you know, 99% sure. But MLS is not above throwing us that curveball for the other 1% saying, hey, we're the boss here. Yeah, I mean, Charlotte got their kit leaked by Dick Sporting Goods, so we just got our conference alignment leaked by Fanatics. 
<laughs> I love it when a plan comes together. And also, uh, in other player acquisition news, there was the re-entry draft process that happened uh, this past week or so. Um, nothing happened on the part of uh, St. Louis City. Lutz apparently didn't find anybody he liked during that. Not surprising. There wasn't a lot of exciting names on the list there. Uh, also going on right now, as we speak, well, not now, It's they kind of played t- earlier today, and we are recording this on Sunday evening. Uh, the St. Louis City Academy teams, the U15s, 16s, and 17s, are not enjoying this chilly weather here in the Midwest. They're out in Indio, California, for MLS Next Fest. And uh, this is being held at the Empire Polo Grounds, uh, going on currently through Thursday, December 8th. And if uh, the name Empire Polo Grounds or Indio, California sound familiar to you, yes, this is the same field that Coachella is hosted in. Party on, Wayne. And uh, the U16s are competing in the MLS Next Showcase part of the event. And so far, they're doing pretty well. They've won their first two matches as of recording here on Sunday night. The U15s and the U17s are competing in the Generation Adidas Cup portion of the event. And uh, the U17s did beat Toronto FC in their first game in penalty kicks, but did get beat by FC Dallas's vaunted academy in their second game. The U15s on Sunday played their first match, and they did win, and they beat up Nashville SC, the aforementioned. And uh, so news will trickle in during this event. See how the academies do, but so far, very good. And are you 16s every year? You know, every year for now, one in a portion. <laughs> have just been beating everybody all the time. They almost won MLS Next uh, Championship uh, last year, finishing second. And uh, good for them. It's good news, and it's good to see the growth in the uh, products of the Academy. Yeah, historically asterisk, the U16s have been good. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that historically being one in a bit years. I mean, it seems like this club, is, according to Lutz, Developing a good academy is a very big part of the way that we're building this franchise together. So to see to see the academy doing this well so soon, it's very promising for the long-term success for the club. Yes, and uh, it's becoming apparent that uh, the use of the academy makes for better MLS clubs. Not only do you get the chance to sell them on to Europe, get more money, into the coffers, which, of course, in America is very important. Uh, get your name out there to attract players, but uh, it also allows you to build a stronger roster given the uh, stringency of the salary cap method of MLS. So it's a big part, and it looks like a very aggressive uh, academy growing in St. Louis that really wants to be in that top echelon of academies with uh, the Philadelphia Union and FC Dallas. And also for all you St. Louis City SC fans, there is another great opportunity, especially for those in the supporters section or those that deem themselves just simply to be supporters of the club. Uh, the St. Luligans are putting on another event, a holiday party. And to give us the information on that, uh, I'll throw it over to producer Mason. Yeah, um, another big Luligans event, which these are always a ton of fun, so I'm looking forward to this one. It's going to be on the 17th of December. Um, it's going to be at 5 p.m. at the Schlafly Tap Room upstairs in the event space. Um, they're also doing a, um, a donation drive for Toys for Tots, so if you want to contribute to that, bring an unwrapped gift, unwrapped new toy to donate to Toys for Tots for that. Um, but otherwise, come hang out with us. I think we're planning to be there, at yes. least three-fourths of us. Um, I'll probably be there. I haven't decided for fingers certain. Fingers crossed. But I'll see what I can do. Mark okay. me down as like 75%. At least 75%. half of us will be there yeah. then. <laughs> mark me down as like 75%. I might have something else going on that night, but if not, I'll be there. All right. Yeah, we're kind of making these plans on the fly, too. Can you tell? <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, so all or none of us might be there. 
between zero and one hundred percent possibility of maybe seeing us in person. Yeah, we love being specific on here. <laughs> yeah. Statistically valuable range zero to one hundred percent. But yeah, Je- gestures vaguely at <laughs> at the possibility of being there. Yeah. All right. Anyway, we're planning on being there. Um, come hang out with us. Uh, drink some beers. Have some fun. It'll be a good time. And uh, if you can swing it, you know, bring a toy, you know, help brighten up someone's someone's holidays. And it's a great time. If uh, you haven't been out to any of these, we highly encourage it. Uh, Mason and I, uh, when we just started this podcast, went to a meet and greet for the St. Luligans, not knowing anyone. And we left knowing quite a few people. It's a great way to meet people. Everybody's friendly. It's a everyone's there for a common cause. You're going to be greeted with friendliness. You're going to be brought in. Uh, I'll probably be in my silly hat again, so it's easy to find me uh, milling around. Uh, everybody's there. And just walk up and introduce yourself if uh, you're not known and say hi. Yeah, and it'll be indoors, so we won't all be waddling around looking like the Bendum, the Michelin Man. And it's a great <laughs> view right across the street to the stadium itself, so... Yeah, Schleifley got a little lucky on this one. Yeah. <laughs> so we look forward to that. It's going to be a great event. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, now to something that wasn't as much fun. Let's talk about our U.S. men's national team at the World Cup. Yeah, they lost. They made it to the knockout stages around of the last 16, but they did lose to the Netherlands. Three to one on Saturday, in case you hadn't heard. The wretched uh, Dutch. Yep. Uh, a not unusual in. Your cities are cool, but I still hate you. <laughs> I did see a very good post, which was like, uh, <laughs> every U.S. highway has to look like an Amsterdam bike lane. That's the rules of the World Cup. <laughs> yeah. I, we didn't make them. Yes. That's the rules. Uh it's not an unusual end to a World Cup for the U.S., though they've been pretty consistent. If they can make it there, they usually get to the round of 16 at a level that's getting to become a lead amongst the world's countries in the beautiful game. Uh, in this one, defensive miscues, uh, which is kind of a new development for the squad in the World Cup. They've been so good on defense, but not in this one. And a lack of clinical finishing, which is the same old thing we've seen you know, the entire cycle uh, led to the defeat. Yep. And if you watch, go back and watch, the first two goals essentially happened the exact same way, which is Dumfries got in on the wing, just kind of off to the side of the 18-yard box, but we left someone just completely unmarked at the top and just easy pass, easy finish two times before halftime. It is frustrating. And it, it may sound like we're being defeatist here, but the U.S. actually didn't get played off the pitch by any means in this game. But uh, one thing, the we were pro- prolific in front of goal, while the Dutch were ruthless in their finishing. And when they had a chance, they took it. Uh, the Dutch did outclass the U.S. in technical ability, uh, defensive prowess, and just ruthless finishing in this one uh one thing that we didn't see throughout the uh, group stages was that uh i believe it was on the second goal which happened in the last kick of the first half and put the dutch up 2-0 it's a real gut punch and probably really the telling part of the game uh tyler adams uh didn't didn't follow up didn't trail memphis to pie as they led into the attacking uh part of the field and that kind of led to that goal. Also, the third goal was really, really kind of dumbfounding. Uh, the U.S. had gotten themselves back in the game at 2-1, five minutes after they scored the, go- scored the goal in the 81st minute. The Dutch really didn't have a whole... They had something going on. They got the ball deep in the box. They're passing around, and... Anthony Robinson just didn't notice Dumfries standing there in the box, all alone, unmarked, and uh, he gets the pass, and uh, that was the goal, and 3-1, and that was the ball game. Mm. Yeah, full transparency, I didn't watch this game. I watched the highlights of it. Um, 
I after watching the highlights, I feel like I I'm uh, kind of grateful to have slept in a little bit. But um, man, this third one, it looked like they were just kind of standing around and no one was doing anything. And I'm like, what are you all doing? He's somebody do something, please. Yeah, Yeah, no, it this Mason, I think you I think you should have watched the game personally, just because uh, watching highlights. Yeah, you feel like you watched the game. But in this case, especially that we weren't exactly played up the pitch. Like Mike said, it was just the Dutch just had a step on us at, at any given any given point in time. Um, I think what it really came down to, though, was that just it, it came down to these guys were tired. They were making bad decisions. They were slow on picking up their mark. Um, they they you know, they they it, it, it was that split second decision of do I step in for this tackle or let it go? And then that led to a beautiful pass that set up something for the Dutch and, and got us on our heels. And that that's what it was. It, it's, but we still looked really good on the field. We played very well considering the team we were going against. We just couldn't put it away when we had the chance to. Yeah. This is, I really wish I had written down. <laughs> I really should have written down this comment from the Dutch manager before we recorded, but he said in the press conference after the game, essentially, you know, this tournament, the U.S. wasn't really used to having all of a lot of possession, so we just let them have it. We're going to put them in the unfamiliar situation of having more possession and let them kind of dig their own graves. And that's what happened. They, uh, yeah, Louis van Gaal also set up a defensive structure that took away the wing-based attack of the U.S. and really hampered them. And also kind of closed down on Tyler Adams working out of the back. That kind of hampered it. That being said, uh, Christian Pulisic had a very wonderful opportunity in the third minute of the game. He's wide open on the Dutch goalkeeper and just took his shot right into his bread basket. Nothing happening there. Uh, there was chances for the U.S. that they didn't put away. They had possession. They created chances. I believe they actually beat the Dutch in XG in this one. But one thing that was telling was for the opening goal, the Dutch had a 20-pass sequence that led to the opening goal, which had been the most passes that led directly to a World Cup goal since at least 1966, as far as the stat heads know. And that's telling as well, but that's Dutch total football. That's what you expect from them. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was almost as if um and, and I mean the the announcers kind of commented on this very early in the game that yeah, like like Chris said, the, the Dutch were very, very content to let us pass around our back four and then they just man marked the MMA midfield and were like, pass it in. I dare you. I dare you to beat us in possession. And then they and then eventually they got tired of it at, at one point and said, you know what? All right, there's my chance. They took it and then they were clinical on the counter. Because that's what they're good at. They, they, they're good at everything. They're total football. They're the best team to have never won it, in my opinion. And that's what we ran into. We ran into a brick wall. So I don't think the 20 pass goal being the most passes ever to lead up to a goal is correct. Because in in 2006, there, Argentina scored a goal finished by Cambiasso that took 25 passes. Yeah, yeah I didn't think it would be that much uh, it, it's actually surprising the dutch didn't have a play themselves uh, since that time yeah uh, that led to it but uh, one thing i did hear is it was the largest passing sequence that they had it was mostly built out of the back a lot of those passes happen in the back of the field but they maintain possession and they just in this one they always seemed a, a half step ahead of the u.s in everything mm-hmm. uh I think the best way to sum up the game is something Weston McKean- McKinney said at the end of the match was... <laughs> Weston McKinney. <laughs> yeah, he's from Texas. Uh, but uh, he said after the match, you know, some days just aren't your day. And the U.S. actually had one of those. Though I think the fatigue hitting their minds actually more than their bodies... Uh, really played into this because a lot of those defensive miscues and a lot of things that happened actually came down to what could clinically be defined as a brain fart. Is that the technical term? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a fatigue-induced brain fart. Um, 
And I think, and, and I mean, as much as we, you know, people talk about fatigue in this cup, I think a lot of it comes down to our guys specifically, because they really took every single game and put everything they had into every single game. Um, and when it comes down to it, what else can you expect of your players? And next year they, they might be able to manage their next cycle. They might be able to manage their energy a little bit better. And um, they just got to look forward and, and, and just use this experience as fuel, use it as a chip on their shoulder. And I think uh, Tim Ream said it best. It kind of sums up the way that they played this entire cup. Uh, he's, he said, and I'm pulling up the quote here now, so I make sure I actually have it correct. Um, you're never guaranteed anything in this game. I've been in the program for 12 years, never guaranteed anything. Obviously, a lot of these guys are guaranteed another cup. I'm not. So trying to convey that to to treat each and every training session if it's their last and every game as if it was their last. And I think that's what they did in every game of this cup. And they really put it all in the field. Um, and I think at the end of the day, they really should be proud of this outcome, even though and, and the effort that they put out there and, and the result they got and, and on the cup as a whole even though we didn't get any further than we had before. And I think, I think the players did do that. Uh, they really, uh, uh, Sergio Dest was culpable for one inattentive moment that gave up a goal in this game, but he was much better defensively and much more attentive to his duties than he had been in the past. And we'd seen that quite a bit. But one thing that led to these errors here is there's a reason why you don't see this sort of intricate, high-pressing type of style in international football is you usually have a limited number of your best players to play against the best teams in the world when you're at the level the U.S. is, and uh, it takes a lot of energy to do it. The U.S. ran a lot, put a lot into these games, and it really did kind of look like they were out of gas. Yeah. You know, to compare us to... You know, France, who their game against Poland today looked like they more or less were still cruising in the knockout stages. They are not having to extend the kind of energy that we are to stay in. And the the Dutch themselves uh, look like they had more in the tank than the U.S. did. But this is a very young, an extremely young team without a lot of veteran heads with a lot of uh, caps under their belts that were playing here. And... Uh, that sort of naivety, but youth allows you to run a lot more and expend a lot of energy. And that's what happens. That's just a consequence. It's not anything to do with the coach, the system, the players. It's just a consequence of a lost generation to where there wasn't any players, say, 26, 27, 28, that could fill half the starting lineup and allow the best young stars to build those ways in. All the young kids had to come in and do the job right away in the group stage, and they did it quite well. And uh, neutral observers thought very highly of the way this team played and the way that it was coached. That uh, what we saw against England, and look at the results that England has got other than that U.S. game, a nil-nil draw. The U.S. put in a very, very fine performance and held England to zero goals. No one else has even come close to that. Uh, it's almost as if during this during the group stage, uh, because we didn't have those veterans that you know could help us manage ourselves and the game itself at the same time, the, they had to do both that and be the energy guys that are out there running at the game at the same time, and that takes a lot more energy than just being the guy that's supposed to run at the game while the rest of the team manages it. Um, so having a full starting 11, plus the problem of once you look, especially when you look at our midfield, uh, nothing against Kellen Acosta and Christian Roldan, but they there's just no replacement for Tyler Adams. There's there's no real replacement for him. And when you try to use Acosta or Roldan as a replacement for McKinney or Musa, it, there's, a, there's a significant drop off in quality there. Um, so you add all that together. It was just you had to we basically were relying on the same 14 guys. The entire tournament, it's going to fatigue you. They're young kids. They couldn't manage the game while also managing themselves. Um, it seemed like we were chasing the game when we didn't need to be. We were making ourselves chase the game. That's what I was trying to get at. Long-winded way of saying that. Sorry. But uh, they were almost chase making themselves chase the game, and that tired them out even more. Um, again, I said it before the cup even started. 
I I'm looking at I was looking at this coming in as a as a springboard cup for next year next cycle I think next cycle is is going to be the chance where we have a really good opportunity for a really deep run. I will say you know maybe I'm just kind of a bad fan, but at the end of all of this, I'm admittedly feeling a kind of eh about this whole cycle because you know you go back to when the draw first happens before those two disastrous friendlies we had that had a lot of people, myself including, for being honest, kind of catastrophizing about we are not even going to make out of the group stage this year. You know, you remove I those people and the fans who are all sunshine and rainbows, we're going to go all the way. You remove all the emotion from it and you just have like a pure money line perspective to this. What was the most logical way for the U.S. to finish? And the answer is second in the group and then lose to the Netherlands. And that's exactly what happened. So mm-hmm. it was entertaining along the way. But at the end of the day, we did exactly what we were expected to do. And I really just don't know, you know, what to do with it. 2014, that was a very difficult group. And we went through and Portugal didn't. That was something to be proud of. 2010A, you had landed Donovan's amazing goal. And then you finished top of the group. That was amazing. This year, we just... We did what was expected. That's just kind of, eh, okay. I can give a little, put a little shine on that a little bit. Essentially, you're right. The Wales match made their job harder. They might have topped this group if they just looked inexperienced and a little naive in that game and let it get away from them and didn't put away their chances. They do that. Then they come out against England and really played a great match played them evenly and if harry Maguire, who was not that good today against senegal uh had played that way against us the u.s probably walk away with a win just as it was uh and then iran again they looked uh a little shaky at the end of it uh but the one difference is is the entire core of this team even though they looked naive and they looked all this. And of course, development is not linear. It always has its dips and its growth. But there's a whole lot of players that played at a very young age, uh, played intricate moments up into the knockout round, and the team really thought they could beat the Netherlands. And maybe on a better day, they could really made this a game. Uh, you go into 2026 with a different feeling than 2010 and 2014, where you've got to recreate that again with another team. This is a whole team that's going to go on almost the whole team to the next cycle. I mean, yeah, this team does show a lot of promise, but we got to just watch like Hawks the next four years because promise doesn't always work out that way. So we have players that can play have the potential to play at the top level in Europe and really become something special in the next four years. But I don't think it's guaranteed at all. There's a lot of reason to have hope, but I don't think nothing's guaranteed. And I feel like some people are now talking like 2026, us doing well because we're hosting everything is guaranteed. I don't think that's it at all. This is going to be a very, very stressful four years to watch. But some neutral of uh, observers and even some opposing coaches had made comments that uh, the U.S. came in this time actually playing, as they would say, real football and not soccer. I hate those quotes, but the U.S. actually played a real elite style of soccer. And when Burhalter was brought in, and and when Klinsman was brought in, that's what they were, you know, said they were going to do. And we saw it in this World Cup to where the entire style of the way the U.S. plays, we just didn't hoof it long and try to outwork everyone. Yeah, we did outwork. But there is real technical ability and a definable style to this year's team. And they're just starting. And so this style now is ingrained in what's going to be the core group going forward to create the entire culture that this is a style that you have to play to make this team going forward and you have to fit into it. And that is brand new for a U.S. team. That really is. You see, the way I'm looking at it is, is 
in many ways, when we were coming into this, a lot of people looked at us and thought, oh, there's no guarantee. So from outside perspectives, I think they saw us as exceeding expectations, but us as fans of the team, uh, we had much higher expectations because of what's happened in the past in this program. And I'm not saying that's tainted our view, but at the same time, I think the truth of, of how the how to rate the performance is somewhere in between because some pundits in France were calling uh, calling the MMA midfield one of the best midfields in the tournament, if not the best midfield in the tournament. And yeah, they're really good, but they didn't have a great day yesterday. Um, so we're, we're, I think there's a lot of fans that are down on themselves and down on this team right now because they should have done better. Um, there are some people that, you know, like you, Chris, it's like, oh, it's, this is exactly what was expected. But then the, everybody that's not, that doesn't follow us closely, that is just watching us at this tournament is like, they're, they performed much better than I expected. We're giving them high ratings. And I think that, I think somewhere in the middle of all of that is the real way to rate this. And I'm going to go, I think it leans a little bit more towards the, uh, the exceeded expectations side for lack of better term, because of the fact that people that quote, like Mike said, they normally play real football. We finally started playing real football. I think that's what exceeded their expectations. And then there's hope for the future. Yes. Be upset. We lost. Yes. Be upset that we didn't go further. Say we did. We, we expected more, but at the same time we can look forward and realize that most of these guys still have at least two cycles to them. We could see this team progress exponentially. We might not, because like 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 we've all said before, it's not all linear. It's not guaranteed. But I'm I'm gonna err on the side of yeah, because most of them are getting into that that time where they start leveling out and being great players consistently. I mean, from like a layman's perspective, where like I started kind of paying attention to, you know, the casual fans, you know. World Cup experience where you see it every four years, which I started following around like 2010 ish. It seems like all of the doom saying after the US is knocked out just seems part of the cycle at this point almost, where yeah, the US makes it out of group and then they lose, and then you spend two years saying that the US program is broken and it needs to be real rebuilt from the ground up. These players are garbage. The coach is garbage. The whole program is garbage. Can it? And then the next two years are people saying, oh, we're going to go all the way. It's it's this hopeless cycle of just uh, doomerism and then and then peerless optimism. It's the you American exceptionalism. Yeah. But uh, the one thing to keep in mind is there's been talk that... This isn't a golden generation. This is a start of development within the U.S. And you can see that within the MLS academies. People are coming up. Unfortunately, in this pipeline that we can see right now, is not a lot of uh, finishers, people that can score goals. That's what we need. Maybe Josh Sargent, who has the most talent, or Pepe, who's still a teenager, can develop into that. But... You're also going to have young kids that are going to come into this that may be better than the, the team that we have now. Like Paxson Aronson is now going over to Europe, going to the Bundesliga, and people have been saying for years that he might actually have more ability to a higher top end than Brendan uh, does, which is a big statement. Uh, so we'll see. But this is a good time to also bring up the fact that uh, now that the uh, World Cup's over, the cycle's coming to an end. Burhalter and all of his coaching staff are out of contract soon, you know, within the next few weeks. Uh, the big question is, does the United States Soccer Federation bring him back? What do you guys think? I mean, I'm just, I'm very, very torn on this because I think... All things considered, you know, Burhalter did manage to bring an exciting, like Sean was saying, impressing the neutrals team to this tournament. And I think that is an accomplishment, but I really don't have any faith in us to take us much further. Like the question is, what is our goals when we host four years from now? Do we are we trying to hope that we can maybe get a win? Are we trying to get to like the quarter or semifinals? What is our goals? Because I think Burhalter has the ability to take us to 
say the quarter, maybe even the semifinals, I don't think Burhalter gives us a snowball's chance in hell of actually winning anything beyond the Gold Cup. On that point, I think I'm going to have to say that uh, based off of the way that, that Burhalter and the players have talked about, the way this team is built, because uh, it's basically been built from the ground up at this point, the only holdovers being Pulisic and Yedlin, effectively. Um, it, it's it's basically already being built from the ground up. We're seeing a very unique situation in international football where, you know, normally it's, it's a bunch of guys that come from the same country that come play together for like two, three weeks at a time. And then they go back to their club teams. Not a lot of them really, I mean, unless they play in the same league, they don't really connect too much on, on a group level. Um, it's a uniquely American experience to be quite honest, to see the camaraderie level that they're trying to build with the team, um, there's no one guy that everyone talks to that then goes talks to the coach. They have a group council that leads the team. Um, what I'm trying to get at, though, is going to take time to build that base. And I think using this cup as that base building going into the cup that we're hosting, um, if you were to change the coach in the middle of that, he's going to come in and wipe all that out and change it to his own system. And it might be, do more harm than good. I'm not saying that needs that means we need to rehire Greg. But on that point specifically, it, it changing a coach in the middle of a rebuild of, a, of an entire culture of the international squad and the in the program around it, changing a coach in the middle of that will will null nullify and all progress and start over all over again. And uh, yeah, I don't think many coaches in international football need to have eight years in charge. No coaches, very very few coaches are able to, you know keep the keep their message coming through for that long of a time in Burhalter's favor uh DeAndre Yedlin at the end of the match had a quote saying that the hardest thing to do for a coach is to get all the players on the team buying into what he's saying and working together as one unit mm -hmm. and he says and the Burhalter did that with this young team but they're a young team um as they grow up, they're going to have different ideas. Uh, also, keep in mind, tactical decisions and all that, Berhalter himself on the international stage is a very young coach without a lot of seasoning. You bring in club coaches at as young age as he is, you're going to have, uh, you know, growing pains that come with that with your coach. Normally, international coaches come in much later in their coaching careers with a lot more seasoning behind them. And usually you have players with more seasoning behind them as well. Uh, so I don't know. I think the U.S. Soccer Federation, the USSF, will want to bring Burhalter back to keep the progress going, to see the growth in the style of play that they have. But then there's another question. Does Burhalter want to come back to it? I will say... Um... I'm not saying for uh, whether or not they should or shouldn't bring him back because that's not for me to say. And I really don't have an opinion on that. Um, but if they were to bring someone in different than Greg, then it would have to be someone who has some, who's bought into similar ideals as, so as not to deter. But at the same time, yeah, ultimately it's up to Greg if he wants to take said contract, even if they offer it to him. Um, and I, I honestly think that he'll take it if it's offered, but I'm not 100% sure they're going to offer it. Yeah, coaching decisions are just really, really hard to gauge because, you know, maybe this is overselling it a bit, but I do generally trust general managers and head coaches to be smarter about soccer than just about anyone else, especially any pundits or Twitter commentators. So it's really hard to, as a member of the general public, to, to gauge how good a coaching hire is until, you know, you get to the next World Cup cycle and see how we perform then. Yeah, there is a, you know, it's better to live with the evil that you know than the evil that you don't know. And another famous saying is, be careful what you wish for, you just might receive it. Sean hit upon that earlier uh, when he said another coach could come, come in and blow up everything that we're actually happy about. And game management and picking rosters is something that people are screaming about with Burhalter. But he was starting with a completely clean slate because everything was blown up after they missed the, yeah. the uh, 2018 World Cup. He had to build a whole 
pool of talent, see who can play, see who plays together, who fits as a team, who fits in the locker room, often overlooked by fans. And he did it and got us right back to where we were before, after everything got blew up. You say this is the same thing we did before, but it came after devastation and everything was rocked and and all of the talent on the field had gotten old. It needed a complete refresh and we're right back to where we were picking up one cycle later. Italy has now missed two World Cups in a row. The U.S. did not. Keep that in mind. Of course, their qualifications are a hell of a lot uh, harder. But they haven't been able to do it with a lot better talent. So there's things to be said for that. On the other hand, neutral observers, media, all of this, people are looking around and think that Burhalter played this pretty smart, actually. Set his team up, coached him up on an international level, only have him a few weeks a year, and got the team behind a rather intricate style for the international game. I think he's going to get job offers that are just too hard for him to pass up. He's still young. He's still got a chance to coach, coach on the club level and institute his philosophies on a day-to-day basis rather than on a quarter-to-quarter basis, as usually happens with an international coach. On that, I think that uh, based off of some of the quotes I've been reading from the from the players themselves, um, what the the community and and camaraderie that Greg has brought to these players and built amongst the pool of players is not something that's that's just going to get broken unless you start shipping players like not calling players back in because they've all bought in they all put everything they had on the field. Um, it's it's so even if you did bring someone else in, it might you know there might be backlash between well that's not the way we as our team wants to play so we're not going to play your style. That could cause some problems there. Um, I know that's going off on a tangent, but it was a thought that was in my head and I needed to get it out before I I lost it. So I'll bring up this question. Uh, So they don't bring him back or he chooses to leave. Who's at the top of your list to come in to replace him? Cue a chorus of people screaming Tata Martino like a <laughs> bunch of fools. Like a no, bunch no, no, of no, 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 no. You see, what's going to happen is instead of people calling for Tata Martino, what's going to happen is you're going to get the people on the other side of the state yelling louder than everybody that PV needs to be the new coach of the U.S. men's national team. And it's not going to work because it, it involves a similar buy-in and day-to-day implementation of a system and a style and a community. And that's not going to work. Because it's not the same one that Greg pushes. It's going to be too much butting of heads. In some ways, Tata Martino, after failing with the Mexican Federation, fitting the style of play may work because the Mexican Federation has so much dictation upon how your team's going to be set up. Sort of like Chicharito, Carlos Vela. They ticked off people within the Federation for being independent, and he really wasn't going to pick them. Now, he flamed out royally, but his style of play fits. The way he wants to play would fit. Uh, there's not so much inertia in our Federation as there is in Mexico. And he's going to be wanting to work really hard uh, to try to regain his reputation. Yeah. Also, a lot of people have muted Jesse Marsh as taking over. Uh, uh, I don't see Marsh leaving his... I was going to say, didn't Jesse Marsh just get a new job? <laughs> yeah, no, he's yeah. doing very, very well at Leeds, Major Leeds United. And if he left Major Leeds United, I would be very upset because he's doing some great things there uh, with the help of Adams and uh, Aronson. So good on you. I say if these people want to tilt at windmills, give them some windmills to tilt at and get Caleb Porter in there. No! Jesus. (laughs) No, then you'd be the first team to ever win a World Cup and then miss the next cup altogether. (laughs) But hey, man, we would win. Italy. No! I don't want that! (laughs) But uh, going back to Marsh, his system, he seems to be very pragmatic and, and very determined to implement his system. Look at what his job was with RB Leipzig and how it fell apart. 
it demands incredible amounts of fitness from your players. Aronson and Adams have that naturally, and that fits. But to be able to say that all of your international players coming from their clubs are going to have that same level of fitness and going to be pushed to this extreme level of work and to make that work, you know, during a World Cup that's going to be during the summer uh, after they have some time off to say all these players are going to be on that same page and that same level of fitness. I honestly don't see how Marsh's system would actually ever work on the international stage. Yeah. Another thing to keep in mind is we haven't heard from FIFA yet about uh, automatic qualifying with three host nations. It's only happened once for the Men's World Cup. It's going to happen again next year with the Women's World Cup. But with this one, with three countries, are all three countries going to get automatic qualification in an expanded World Cup to 48 teams? where there's going to be more opportunities than CONCACAF and probably more than CONCACAF really deserves, uh, to be quite honest. Uh, Will the U.S. get automatic qualification? If they don't go through a qualifying cycle and all the best teams in the world are tied up with now their confederations, nation leagues for friendlies, it's going to be very hard to get friendlies. And be quite honest, until the Olympics in 2024, there isn't a damn thing for an incoming coach to do for the next two years till 2024 and start ramping up. There is nothing for them to do. So I've been seeing a lot of screaming on Twitter that I do frankly agree with that. So every year, Copa America has 10, t- has 10 countries. And to make groups of four work, you need to invite two guest countries and the U.S. is usually kind of in the orbit being a Western Hemisphere's team. And I've seen a lot of stream on Twitter saying we desperately need to, more than anything else, lobby as hard as we can to be one of those invited teams. And I absolutely agree with that. When you have this young, promising, but inexperienced team, an experience like Copa America, you are going to be playing in a very difficult location, probably. You're going to be playing against very hard opponents this is the sort of experience that might just mold this team into a winner so i think that's something that we just need to do now i don't disagree with that at all but what's the politics within the federation they've historically held to Concacaf and wanting to be bigger wigs in this federation and usually Doing Copa America gets you runs you into problems with fielding a valuable team in the Gold Cup. And why CONCACAF has gone to every two years with this is, well, I understand. But it doesn't really help Mexico and the U.S. to do that. But they're going to want the U.S. to bring a strong, their best team to the Gold Cup for ratings and U.S. money. Wait, is because there a World that's Cup what, next year too? In the off years between the World Cup, so 2021, 2020, no, 2023, 2025, there'll be World, there'll be Gold Cups. Yeah. When's Copa America? Is that in 2024? 2024. Okay. The, uh, this last cycle, uh, it was because of COVID that they were concurrent. So they should try to get in there yeah, and absolutely. get in. If the Gold Cup is odd years in between the, the World Cup and Olympics. Hundred percent. We need something on you know Olympic years that you know something more important than the Olympics, where we can field the A team as opposed to the the young guys. Even though most of the young guys are the A team. Yeah. This is like to me breaking news because I looked a few days ago and I saw that Ecuador was chosen to host the twenty twenty four Gold Cup or Copa America. I'm sorry. Um, as of since the last time I looked at the news, that has changed, and Ecuador declined their invitation to host. So we don't know who's going to be hosting the Copa America two years from now. It might know one be exciting news <laughs> just to me. <laughs> but I mean, this change in the past like two, they've three got days. those brand spanking new new stadiums from 2014. They could use. 
I was going to actually make the joke that like we need to convince somebody in the U.S. Soccer Federation that somehow competing in Copa America is uh, an extension of American imperialism and we'll get Yair Bolsonaro reinstalled in Brazil. (laughs) Well, Brazil hosted the last two editions of Copa America, both 2019 and 2021. Uh, the man, the man who has had the most COVID, is uh, apparently the U.S.'s most important strategic ally in the region. So we'll see. But uh, everyone in this hemisphere wants to tap into American money. That's going to be the driving factor. If there are somehow any old school soccer purists listening, this is maybe the most controversial thing said. Everything, but 2016, where every Western Hemisphere team was invited to the Copa America was incredible, and we need to do that more often. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. That has a lot of countries with a lot of differing views. Politics gets involved. Uh, Plot twist, they invite Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago instead of the U.S. and Mexico. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's Trinidad and Tobago win Copa America. Way to go, boys. (laughs) There's a whole lot to go with these decisions. And one of the last things that's thought about is the development of the players and the team on the pitch. Uh, So keep that in mind when you dream. There's the politics Mm. and all that take up... uh, 95% 95% of these conversations more than what's the right thing to do for the team that plays. And that will always be the case. Yeah. Before 2016, when, you know, it was Comedy Bowl and CONCACAF, the last time the U.S. was invited to Copa America was 2007. And Mexico and Costa Rica have both been chosen over us since then. And even Japan now has they been chosen over us since 2007. From things I've heard, it isn't always necessarily that they were chosen over us. A lot of times the U.S. declined those invocations for some reason or another as well. What that might be, I don't know. You have to go knock on the door at Soccer House in Chicago and see if you get an answer. Well, I just want to go back a quick second. Just to be fair, Japan getting invited is valid because uh, they did win a group with Spain and Germany in it. So... I mean, I'm not talking about competitive, so I'm talking about if you're calling Copa America. Okay, that's fair, but it's always always had two invitational slots, all right? And those those can come from anywhere, and that's always been stated it can come from anywhere. Sean, are you trying to sort history by descending? Like, (laughs) (laughs) Shush. Shush, Mason. I just want to celebrate the fact that Japan, a team that was largely expected to not make it out of group stage, won their group over two giants of of this football economy. And I just love watching giants get toppled. I love it. It's it's one of my favorite things. That's why I love a cup set. I I don't disagree with you, but (laughs) we don't have to do alternate history for it. (laughs) I also wonder how the South American countries and their federations are going to look at inviting Mexico and the U.S., coming in and Mexico's going to push hard because they always do uh, to get in. Are they not going to want to help the U S with the game on their shores with the bright young talents coming through? They might not, there might be some pushback in a, no, we don't want to help them develop. No, no, we want to win. I want to know how do they decide to, who to invite? Is it like uh, all the countries can, you know, leaders get together and say, all right, we want these teams. And then they vote and they decide, or is it the host just, just sends out invitations. And then as they get, you know, if they get refused, they send out a different one. Like they have a short list, <laughs> a, a both less effective and less important United nations. <laughs> it's just like our recording studios. It's fought out in a dark smoke filled room. <laughs> And uh, how it actually happens, <laughs> you don't want to know. <laughs> Plot twist, it's decided by a game of Magic the Gathering. Send me, I will win. I will get us a spot with Magic the Gathering. Man, the CIA's really gotten fat and happy since the fall of the wall, huh? Yeah. I'm sure it has a they lot to do with Magic the Gathering. They just let a bunch of Roombas with knives and balloons tapped to them fight them out Battle Royale style. That's how they choose <laughs> who they invite. <laughs> it is Carnival Games and a Ton of bribery is how this gets done. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and I think we just summed up how world soccer works. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about y'all, but I think that's about all I've got. Yeah, that's uh, about all I got. Anybody else have any further comments? No, I suppose not. <laughs> well, I guess we'll wrap it up. And I'm your host, Mike Turner. I'm your producer, Mason. I'm your resident cave-dwelling hooligan, Sean. And I'm the man with immaculate internet, Chris. And we are the Soccer Capital Podcast. Hey, you know what? We thank you personally for listening. Bye for now.